Okay, well, uh, welcome everybody to this, the, uh, the fifth in our lectures on uh, getting to zero. Uh, just um, before we start, a few brief plugs for the remaining two. Next Thursday, we have Dr. Jody McVernon, who is Program Leader of Mathematical Modeling um, at the Melbourne School of Population Health. And she'll be talking about global education and infectious diseases. Uh, cannot very much undermine the goal of none at all. And then the final uh, lecture in the series will be Professor John Schellenhuber, um, who is the director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Germany. We'll be talking on restitution of the atmosphere uh, below zero emissions. So we've gone, we've gone from, uh, from zero to zero chance to below zero, sub-zero, exactly. Um, but today my uh, job is um, the very pleasant one of introducing to you uh, Dr. Patricia Lewis. Uh, Patricia has joined us from uh, Monterey, where she is the Deputy Director and Scientist in re uh, Residence of the James Martin Center for Non-Proliferation Studies, which is itself part of the Monterey Institute of International Studies. I we've got all of that right. And uh, the so with Middlebury College. Oh, right. Um, so she gets to spend her time when she's not jetting around the world in the, in the very beautiful surroundings of, uh, of Monterey, California. Uh, she has an extraordinary record of achievement and service uh, in the domain of nuclear weapons and their control. Um, she was director of um, UNIDIA, the United Nations Institute for Disarmament Research, uh, and prior to that, she was um, director of the Verification Technology and Information Center in London. Uh, she has served with Hans Blix as a commissioner on the WMD Commission, uh, and I also note that she um, is a recipient of the American Physical Society's uh, uh, Joseph Burton Award for outstanding contribution um, to the public understanding of the resolution of issues involving the interface of physics and society. And I think that really um, is, is an extraordinary um, uh, background and, and uh, an award and context within which to, um, to approach today's topic. So I'm going to sit down uh, now. Well, thank, thanks very much, David. And um, thank you very much as well to the 21st Century School for inviting me. We've, we've got our connection through James Martin, um, who uh, has obviously been a force for good uh, in both uh, sides of the Atlantic. Um, I should say that I'm not going to be talking about science today, but if anyone wants to ask me any science questions afterwards, I'm always happy to get into that. Uh, what I am going to be talking about is a, an approach to nuclear disarmament that I've been developing uh, with colleagues in Geneva um, through our work in disarmament that went beyond the issues of uh, weapons of mass destruction. Um, set in the context of conflict prevention. And when you work in Geneva, even if you're working in a very narrow slice of, of the politics of disarmament within the UN, as I was doing, you can't help but get integrated into humanitarian issues, health issues, human rights issues. It's all there. Everyone you meet is working on all of these different things. And there, there are connections uh, between them all. And there's a natural way uh, to connect up the dots in this regard. And I should also say um, that I have no background in law. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. And so I'm talking about international humanitarian law from the perspective of how I witnessed it working as a non-lawyer. So don't ask me any legal questions about uh, international humanitarian law, because I won't be able to answer them. But I suspect in the room there may be some people who could. And I also want to say that a large part of this work was I've done with my colleagues at um, the ICRC, Robin Coopland, uh, Peter Hervey, and uh, Camilla Wyshnik, uh, who was there at the time. 
and also with John Burry and Christoph Karl in Unidia. Um, we formed a, a small group working on uh, things like small arms uh, and light weapons control, landmines, and cluster munitions, and uh, helped with the intellectual content of, of a lot of these processes, also on, um, very much on biological weapons. And so in our brains, we naturally integrated these issues. So I want to first of all look at some characteristics of nuclear weapons. And the first is, of course, massive casualties per bomb. Uh, if we look at uh, the two times that they were used in the conflict, uh, the number of casualties were, of course, far greater than the initial number of casualties. Uh, they went on for a long time. People die of horrific deaths over decades and still continue to do so. I was in Hiroshima just a couple of weeks ago, meeting now the very elderly Vashka, who are somehow struggling on. Uh, many of them, as you know, were horrifically burned. And of course, you know, as, as life has gone on, the combination of um, gnarled fingers, digits, and, and other parts of their bodies uh, with things like normal rheumatism <laughs> as you get older uh, has, has proved to be very difficult. But they're still talking about it. Um, and their message to the world is, we are leaving you. We are dying out, those of us who managed to survive. And we need you. We don't want to leave before we know you're going to get rid of these weapons. That's a very powerful message. And there are many other people who've suffered the effects of nuclear weapons uh, as um, the testing victims. There were many people who were um, put in the line of fire, literally, of nuclear weapons as a form of scientific experiment to see the effects. People in the villages around uh, Semipalatinsk, for example, <coughs> veterans uh, from um, the various militaries of the, of the countries that have developed nuclear weapons and uh, others. Uh, indigenous peoples in particular, uh, uh, in Australia obviously, in, in the Pacific, um, and uh, many of them are still suffering long-term effects. Now in terms of massive, massive casualties compared with, for example, firebombing, carpet bombing, they're, they're not that different. The numbers are not that different. And so in that sense, nuclear weapons are no worse, if you like, than the terrible firebombing of Dresden, the Tokyo bombing that we saw in the Second World War. And in terms of long-term environmental impact, long-term effects of the weapons, you can equate them as well to things like small arms, landmines, and cluster munitions in their long-term impact in the ground. So in that sense, nuclear weapons are not so unique. They have radiation. Um, but the, the effect of radiation um, it is mixed. It has a terrible effect on people who encounter it immediately, uh, and, but most of them encounter far worse things from blast and, and fire. Um, and then the, the fallout radiation affects different people in different ways, depending on, on their genetics, on their um, exposure, on their age, on their gender. And, um, and, it, and as I say, it is mixed. There are people who have survived and survived with very few ill effects. And then there are others, of course, who, who didn't survive at all. And for example, one gentleman I was talking to recently, his friend, his school classmate, and he were together. I suppose exactly in the same way, and one of them died very quickly, and he, he's now 80. So, uh, you know, and in very good health, I have to say, his skin was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it was a radiation effect. Um, 
So we have, so in a sense, they're quite similar to other weapons in that way. We have some long-lasting, horrendous effects. Um, but I think the other thing about nuclear weapons, and this is a man-made consequence, is the power in which we have invested in them, and their symbolic power. And as a result, they are distorting international relations. Um, they are spreading because of a desire for this symbolism in part, there are other reasons. Um, and we are concerned, of course, that they're not only spreading to states, and there's a renewed interest in the possibility of getting nuclear weapons in some states, but they, they could well spread to non-state armed groups and be used, for example, in terrorist activities. And of course, in so doing, there's a risk of use um, by accident or by design. <coughs> And if we look at just accidents, during the Cold War, we now know much more than we did then, thank God, because I don't think any of us would have ever slept, um, about the near misses that we had. Um, Cuba missile crisis was only one of the whole series. Um, and there has been some very disturbing news uh, coming out recently that historians are looking into, into the, what's called the Able Archer near miss. Um, we can talk about that later, but there was a complete misunderstanding between East and West in the 80s. And from what I understand from the people I've spoken to who've really read all these documents, that we were this close um, to, to a nuclear war in Europe by accident. And it wouldn't have been an accident like a misfiring by accident, but an accidental use in the sense of making a decision based on erroneous information in a state of panic, which of course is, you know, not an unheard of thing, particularly in times of high tension. And the other thing about them is, again, like landmines or cluster munitions, um, <coughs> chemical weapons, biological weapons, is that they are classed under inhumane, and I'm going to look at that and give you the history behind that, but they're inherently indiscriminate. Um, they do not have a legitimacy. Now, that, what do I mean by that? By that I mean is that the one treaty, the one international treaty, that in a sense uh, codifies the status quo, in that there are five states allowed to have them within the treaty, demands that they be negotiated, negotiated away with faith. And in that sense, they're not legitimate. They, they have a timeline. They have to go. Um, they have greater than required uh, suffering. They cause greater than required suffering. And they violate the dictates of the public conscience, which is an international humanitarian law term. And um, that is characterized by um, what is actually one of the less um, shocking pictures. Uh, if any of you have ever been to the Hiroshima Museum and seen some of the horrific pictures, it, it's actually even a hardened nuclear wonk like myself that's still quite hard to And the other thing about them, I think, is that whatever your beliefs about nuclear deterrence in the Cold War, which were, in the end, thank God, never fully tried and tested, today, it's very hard to make a military case. Um, they can't be used to take territory. They're pretty useless and almost, well, it, it's, you can't even think of a conflict in which we're currently uh, embroiled, or anybody is, in which they could be useful. And the whole issue of nuclear deterrence is now under serious question. Um, if there was, if there had been nuclear deterrence during the Cold War, where is it now? 
Where is that doctrine of deterrence? What are we deterring? How would they be deterred with the use of, chemical, of, of nuclear weapons? And then the other concern, which is, I think, one of the main prompts of President Obama's push to zero, is that they are clearly a proliferation stimulant. If a country like the UK, if a country like France, which are in such a benign security environment, says that they need nuclear weapons just in case, well, how much more does Iran need nuclear weapons? How much more does North Korea need, need nuclear weapons? Now, I can tell you that Iran does not need them. North Korea does not need them. But they can argue that if that's the case, how is it that those that have them still want them when they have no real security issues or concerns for which they could produce them? And then there's some new research that's coming out. I mentioned Abel Archer, but there's some more interesting um, Things. There was this belief that, with the doctrine that was uh, devised over the Cold War, that there was a that nuclear weapons provided a special form of uh, crisis-stable deterrence. You know, just if you start to go to war, it all escalates so quickly that it becomes a, essentially a mutual assured destruction. No one really believes this ladder of escalation, step by step. Careful, you know, I'll send you a small one, and you reply with a small one, and we're done, and we're even going quits. Or if you reply with a bigger one, I'll reply with a slightly bigger one, and nobody really, in their right mind. <laughs> Some people believed it, but they're not in their right mind. They <laughs> nobody really believed that. That there was an understanding on both sides of this kind of doctrine. It was very religious. Um, but it might have been in that understanding that there was some crisis-stable situation. We could call it deterrence. And there was a belief that nuclear deterrence prevented global conflict. And as I say, that is being questioned. And the point from that is, that if that is true, well, then shouldn't more states happen, particularly states in regions of conflict, if, if it prevents conflict? You know, and this is what India and Pakistan believe they have done. They believe that they have um, prevented conflict by developing nuclear weapons. Now, of course, the number of conflicts that have taken place between them suggests that that may not be true. And one can only hope that if there is another conflict between them, that it doesn't go nuclear. And fundamentally, Nuclear weapons have not done what some people imagine they would do, that they would change us fundamentally in some way, that we would become a different species, that we would understand how terrible a war would be and you know, how it quickly would escalate, and we would somehow find a way to prevent conflict. And we don't do that. We're a very complex species, and we do enter into conflict, and it excites us. Um, you only have to watch other primates watching conflict to understand it. To watch, uh, watch, uh, for example, chimpanzees fighting and people, um, the other chimpanzees watching them, and see how exciting it is. And it's it, you get caught up in their own excitement. And indeed, you know, what do we want to know? What do we read about in our newspapers? What do we really, we love to read about people's conflicts? It's an exciting thing. It does something for us. It pushes our buttons. And, to understand ourselves, we have to come to terms with that. Cooperation is vital to us as well, and we would not have progressed as a species without cooperation, but it doesn't excite us quite so much. Right? And let's just know that about ourselves. So we still go to war. Now, we are looking for ways in which we can prevent that, and I think we've been very successful in many ways, and there are countless examples of that. Um, and so we're getting better and better at war prevention, and it's something we need to work on a great deal. 
But we can't rule out going to war, and nuclear weapons have not prevented that. Uh, and we can't, we don't have evidence that it prevented a, an all-out escalation, though the belief persists. And it's worth noting that there were long periods without war in Europe, throughout history, before nuclear weapons ever were even a twinkle in the eye of anybody. And the reason there was a lot long periods of peace, of course, had nothing to do with weapons or anything to do with much to do with individuals, politics, leaders, trade, culture, and what was going on at the time um, in all of those environments. And that's true in other parts of the world, too. And so I'm much more interested in what we can do to promote peace in the way that we have um, peace in Europe for the last few decades, which we assign, I think, primarily to the European Union and, and trade and diff different interconnectedness. But a lot of people have different views about that, and, and I'm not saying that we understand it entirely. But one of the most important things for me is this last bullet, and that is that the documents from the Japanese war cabinet um, have been released over the last couple of decades. And people who have been studying them, that I've spoken to, and who have been writing about it, and many of you probably read these um, analysis. I don't know if any of you read Ward Wilson's essay, prize-winning essay last year, The Myth of Nuclear Deterrence, a non-proliferation review, and he, he goes into some of this. And they basically, from, from what I understand, is that in all of the uh, war records, it was not the bombing of Hiroshima, Japan, and, and Nagasaki in Japan, that just made, well, they made the decision for them. In fact, from their perspective, it was no worse than the Tokyo bombings, which did not happen. And from what we know about how people respond under all-out attack, and unless nuclear weapons are special and different, and at the time, they didn't really know that, what we know when people are under all-out attack is they tend to dig in. Massive city attack has tended to make people more um, nationalistic. Uh, under huge threat, people tend to group together and tend to fight the enemy. And according to the historical analysis now, the key factor in the uh, decision to end the war um, via Japan was the Soviet declaration of war um, in, uh, on August the 9th, and not the bombing of Nagasaki in Soviet. But that's an argument for historians, but it's a very interesting argument, because if that's true, that's a single case we have. In one case, you know, if you take your Russian nuggets like together, it's a one case um, study, which is never a good basis to form a whole security um, uh, edifice. But really, my, my point from the side is to say that the whole concept of nuclear deterrence during the Cold War is being seriously questioned. So if we go back to way before the Cold War nuclear weapons, to 1862, um, when Henri Dunant said, if the new and frightful weapons of destruction that are now at the disposal of the nations seem to abridge the duration of future war, it, feels, it appears likely that future battles will become more and more murderous. And indeed, um, people writing at the time were aware of the possibility of the use of chemical weapons, um, were looking at 
the types of battlefield weapons that were available and were projecting way into the future and thinking about how, what, how, what, how war was evolving. And, and as a result of Dunon and others thinking, uh, the use, the misuse, and the control and prohibition of weapons is woven throughout the whole approach to the rules of war and international humanitarian law. And if you go back um, through the historical record, you'll see that um, this has been a vital element of all of the approaches of the Red Cross uh, to the laws of war. And you'll hear from some people that the Red Cross doesn't get involved in politics, that doesn't deal with weapons of mass destruction, with high international politics. I'm going to show you that that is just not the case. Um, so, I put that in, in italics. Uh, combatants are, so um, international humanitarian law and use of weapons in combat. Um, combatants uh, are prohibited to use weapons which are inherently indiscriminate or which are of a nature to inflict suffering greater than that required to take combatants out of action. And weapons which violate the dictates of the public conscience, and that's those that we find abhorrent, that have long term horrific, nasty effects like for example, uh, chlorine or massacre, may be prohibited on that basis alone. This is a moral and ethical dimension. And the use of weapons which cause widespread long-term and severe damage to the natural environment is also prohibited. And it's on those basis that, you know, indeed, landmines and cluster munitions have been um, outlawed. And you can see, if you use those criteria for lethal weapons, fall under that category. Without doubt. Taking you back now to um, the First World War and the horror of that war, uh, which is burned into our memories, even if we weren't there. I mean, we, we are products. Our society here is a product of what happened throughout Europe in that war. <coughs> I'll just use them for the I'm sure you all know it. And then, by 1918, the use of poison gases had become widespread. And about 100,000 tonnes of that gas was used, of gas, no, just all types of gas was used in the war. In fact, it's chlorine, phosgene, and, and mustard were the three main. And the mixture of chlorine and phosgene uh, formed something they called White Star, uh, which was a, a, a chemical which became dreaded. We had over a million casualties, 100,000 deaths that were recorded. And there were many unrecorded, particularly in, on, on, in the Russian um, area. And survivors who were left were left horribly disabled for the rest of their lives. And it was that that prompted the outlawing of the use of um, poison weapons. And it's important to be aware that that was the focus, the prohibition of use. And I know that Rebecca Johnson was here a week or ago talking about the prohibition of use. And indeed, in international humanitarian law, because the emphasis is on hu humanitarian issues and on protecting people, it is, it is the prohibition of use that counts most. And I think that that's what we should be focusing on, because it is that that provides the reason for nuclear disarmament. If it's just politics, if it's just power politics, and it's about you know, misspending of resources, and if it were true that deterrence worked and that nuclear weapons would prevent war, we would, I think we're having a very different argument. 
the argument really is about the effects of these weapons and the abhorrence of their use in the same way as it was about chemical weapons or biological weapons or landmines. And, and when I say landmines, I'm talking about anti-personnel landmines, the ones that have affected people in fields and, and, and um, people in very poor areas, unable to grow food, um, having their, their breadwinner um, put out of action or killed uh, by landmines and, and the persistent um, re remainder uh, of landmines, remnants from the war staying on. And indeed, nuclear weapons stay on in the environment. So in 1925, the Geneva Protocol uh, prohibited the use in war of asphyxiating poisonous or other gases um, and was agreed at the League of Nations and stayed in place and remains in place and is still the, the, uh, the, the foundation stone for what became then the Bioweapons Convention, as it's now called, which was the outlawing and will eventually lead to the abolition. Uh, you know, I'm not going to pretend that these treaties are perfect. And by the way, for my nuclear weapon-free world, I don't require a crisis-free, a conflict-free, a lovely humanity and everyone all being cuddly world. I'm expecting a world that will be as more or less as it is now in terms of the way we behave, as we have always behaved, and as we will continue to behave. I, I'm, I have to recognise who we are as a species. And don't require us to be transformed and to do everything nicely. And in fact, that's why I want to get rid of nuclear weapons, because I think that they will be used. I don't think we'll be able to prevent that eventually. And then we had the 1993 Chemical Weapons Convention, which again outlawed and will eventually abolish chemical weapons. That's the work in progress. So we ended up then with a, a different type of convention, which was a framework convention um, that was first, um, the original negotiations began in the Red Cross and then transferred over to the UN. It was an extraordinarily difficult um, uh, negotiation in the 1970s and brought about the Convention on Certain Conventional Weapons, which is a dreadful title, isn't it, for a, <laughs> a treaty. And it's known, it's known in, in common parlance as the Inhumane Weapons Convention. And then in, in, in my terrible wonky parlance, it's known as the CCW, um, which is very, really <coughs> difficult because we have the CWC, which is the Chemical Weapons Convention, CCW, which is this Inhumane Weapons Convention, and now have the CCM, which is the Clustering Weapons Convention. So this is the alphabet soup, the acronym um, institute has got it right. So then we had the Mine Bank Convention in 1997, the UN Program of Action on Small Arms in 2001, and the Convention on Cluster Munitions in 2008, and now we have the Arms Trade Treaty process and progress, which is ongoing. Now, I put all of these together because they're all about conventional weapons, and they've all gone in a similar way, and what we were doing at UNIDO, and we continue to do it, is analyse um, what it was about these processes that led them to be so successful. Uh, because we were dealing constantly in the Conference on Disarmament and in the UN um, frameworks in, on nuclear weapons with complete failure since 1996. And yet, at the same time, all of these things were going on. Um, for example, the Explosive Remnants of War uh, protocol to the CCW um, was negotiated in 2006. So you know, while all of these difficult things and nothing was happening in the conference on disarmament, down the corridor, the same people, the same governments, the same individuals, the same ambassadors,
were negotiating disarming treaties, but you have to leave. And about weapons they were using, weapons that were actually in use, weapons that had a field manual, and people knew what they were supposed to do with them, unlike nuclear weapons. The military find nuclear weapons today increasingly those in countries that possess them, because they don't know how they're supposed to use them anymore. And they're taking up resources and manpower and training and energy away from weapons they could use. They're very annoying, pesky things, nuclear weapons. And one of the things that we, we did, we, we're doing this analysis, and one of the things that we've understood is that several factors made this work, made these processes work, and treaties be negotiated. One was the humanitarian perspective of uh, survivors, uh, deminers, the people taking these weapons apart, um, blowing them apart mostly, humanitarian and medical personnel in the field. Um, and the other was, a core group of uh, governments that felt passionately, they often were uh, governments, for example, in NATO, uh, Norway, Belgium, the Netherlands, uh, would be examples, um, Italy, France, um, and the UK, uh, taking this issue and running it forward. Canada was a, a major, with Norway, was a major player in the Landmines Convention. Um, in cluster munitions, Norway, uh, with Ireland and Austria and Mexico, uh, were really, again, major players. And bringing in experts from academia, and what they call cognitive diversity, this is what we're calling it, where you have many different experiences and knowledge and expertise brought together to work on a problem and develop something new. And that seems to be a key ingredient in success in negotiation. And so it's the diversity of perspective in multilateral disarmament work that seem to matter most. And, and for that, you need to have structures where all of those people can have a voice. And in the UN structures, non-governmental actors are separate. And they're not given a voice so easily. And in fact, until this year, nobody was allowed, no non-governmental expert was allowed to speak in the conference on disarmament. And it changed for the first time. And yes, they could speak at seminars, etc. It wasn't that their voice was never heard, but it was never given an official recognition. And then the other thing was seeing security in human terms. Um, when you start to put the personal, the human, at the centre of your security discussion, then you change the focus of what you're doing. And you start thinking about power politics so much and getting caught up in theological discussion, and you start thinking about what happens to the people in conflict and how you might prevent that conflict. And so prohibition of use then becomes central. When I first came to Unidia, and I come from this background of you know, technical, wonky, science-y um, arms control, you might call it, um, and I started to think about this, I asked a question, I went to Stockholm, I think, in, uh, when I was about 98, and I said, if we put human rights and human security, as it was a new term at that point, and no one liked to use it, but if we put that at the center of our discussions, what, how would they be different? That was the question. We couldn't answer it at the time, but I, I, I can answer that now. And that says we would be putting prohibition of use right at the centre, as indeed international humanitarian law has done. So one of the things that I did was I, I, I did this little table for fun. And I compared the two communities uh, that I was 
operating in. And I haven't got the science community in the other But I was working in both. I was working with the humanitarian community on, on landmines, etc. And I was working with the arms control community on um, nuclear issues and, and so on. And the arms control criticism of, for example, the mine burn convention is that the treaty is a well, the truth is that there isn't a perfect treaty. The non-proliferation treaty isn't perfect. The comprehensive test ban treaty isn't perfect. The intermediate range nuclear forces treaty isn't a perfect treaty. They're a compromise. That's what a treaty is. It's a negotiation. It's a compromise. <coughs> and what the humanitarian community says is, well, you know, give us a break. Nothing is perfect. Let's not be. Let not the best be the enemy of the good. And you know, let's just get on with it and make our imperfect treaty. And then the criticism the arms control community has of the mine ban convention, for example, is not all key players are in the treaty. Well, that's true. By the way, that was also true for the NPD. Um, in 1968, we did have Russia, the UK, and the United States. But when did France and China, China join the non-proliferation treaty? Does anybody know? 92. 1992. And which of them joined first, France or China? China. Within months. But nobody said the NPT was no good because they were you know, two of the key players. And we still don't have India and Pakistan and Israel in there. But still the mainstay of the multilateral nuclear disarmament regime. Um, and anyway, the door is open. When they're ready, they're very welcome to sign. And the arms control community says, well, unless the key players are negotiating the treaty, it's worthless. Now, the problem that I've seen in real life is that when you have the key players in, they water down the treaty to their comfort level. They water it down so actually it has very little impact on them. And you end up with a treaty that everyone is feeling very happy about, if they've got these weapons, but it has almost no value. So the idea of the humanitarian community is keep the bar high. Keep the bar at a level that means something and then get people, you know, when people are ready, they can join. And that way you have something of value, even if not everyone's involved. Now this is a very big debate, and it's one we can have afterwards. But uh, I've increasingly come to that view. Because that's the thing that lasts. That treaty is on the statute books. And that lasts, and people can come and join, and they can even leave. If you water it down and everyone can join, fine, but what's its lasting value? Um, and one of the other things that happens in nuclear arms control, and it's been happening in the CD, the Conference on Disarmament, since 1996, is that, you, that everyone's trying to get the terms and conditions agreed before negotiations. Well, forgive me, I thought that's what negotiations were for. And so what the international humanitarian community does is they say, well, the purpose is this. This is what we're going to achieve. Let's begin. Let's start negotiating and see how we get there. And to me, that's a very practical, pragmatic way of working. Um, and then they say, the arms control community, says, well, you know, come on, your landmine convention, your cluster munitions convention, you know, and not all these weapons have been destroyed. And the answer is yes, that's true. But that's also true for chemical weapons. It's also true for biological weapons. And it's certainly true for nuclear weapons. And you know, give us time, and they will be. This, this, these are all works in progress. And in the meantime, and this is the key thing, lives are being saved. So the answer is, let's get on and do it. 
And even though we end up with something that isn't perfect, the answer is also that whatever way you come to it, you end up with something that isn't perfect. So you choose your imperfections. Okay, so I said I'd tell you about the Red Cross and nuclear weapons. You often hear people saying that the Red Cross doesn't deal with nuclear disarmament because it's so political. And in 1954, the Board of Governors of the Red Cross pleaded, that's the only way to describe it, with all the powers to work unceasingly for general disarmament to prohibit the use absolutely effectively of all nuclear weapons, as well as chemical. And don't forget, we already had the 1925 Geneva Protocol by then. So they equated nuclear weapons and prohibition of the use of chemical in 1996, we had the International Court of Justice um, issue an advisory opinion on the legality of the threat of use of nuclear weapons, threat or use. Now, as you know, that advisory opinion was very mixed on a number of issues. But one thing they were unanimous on, and so I think it's more significant <coughs> than perhaps the rest, and that's that the principles and rules of international humanitarian law apply to the use of nuclear weapons. And to me, that was one of the most important findings of the International Court of Justice. And when you talk to people in Manfield, they say, oh, the ICJ couldn't agree on anything, it means nothing. You know, they couldn't agree on use when it came to, you know, um, absolute right of reply on nuclear weapons and deterrence. And that's all true, they couldn't. But they could agree on that. And all of that gets lost because of their disagreements on other things. And that, to me, is very important. And then, when the ICJ decision um, was made, the Red Cross then made a statement in the UN saying that it finds it now difficult to envisage how use of nuclear weapons could be compatible with the rules of international humanitarian law as a result of the ICJ decision. And we are convinced that because of their devastating effects, um, that no one ever wants to see these used and that you know, fresh instruments should be given to rid humanity of this terrible threat. The Red Cross has been engaged, I have, uh, uh, reference after reference after reference of all of the different um, uh, international conferences uh, throughout the Cold War and the 1960s and the 1970s, 1980s, in which they uh, looked at the issue of nuclear weapons, test ban, and it came out uh, with a large number <coughs> of resolutions and statements on, on this issue. So they have been engaged in it the whole way through. Now, I, as, as David said, I served on the Weapons of Mass Destruction Commission with Hans Blix in which we looked at this issue. Um, and I've just finished, well, we, we've just finished now putting together a report uh, for the new commission of the um, Australian Jap Japanese Commission on uh, nuclear uh, non-proliferation and disarmament, which will come out beginning of December. I can't give an ex exact date yet, because a lot depends on the, uh, the printers. Um, <laughs> Um, and and it, there's a similar theme in this, that nuclear, biological, and chemical arms are the most inhumane of all weapons. And it's this inhumaneness where we find the IHL application to nuclear weapons. So at the heart of the approach is the issue of human security, the protection of civilians, and the application of the rules of war. Which really ought to be the brainer, right? Because that is what we all agree our society is essentially founded on that, in part on, on those types of principles. Um, and weapons that are inherently indiscriminate of a nature to inflict unnecessary suffering, that violates the sense of decency, or the dictates of the public conscience, as it's called in international humanitarian law, um, are indeed, and cause widespread, etc., etc., are indeed nuclear weapons. Um, 
And disarmament treaty law is in fact rooted in these norms. And if you look at the history of international disarmament law, which I'm not going to do in this uh, lecture, you can see that progress in disarmament has been achieved when the devastating impact of the weapons has been fully understood. And, and it's the public sense of those weapons that have mattered terribly to politicians, especially in countries where they get voted in their own. So what works, and I'm nearly finished, <laughs> what works in international humanitarian law is a pragmatic approach. What is essential is the, the concept of protection of people. <coughs> and building on what exists and what already works and ensuring cognitive diversity, bringing in many different perspectives, which is, a, again, a really smart thing to do. You, you bring in people with different viewpoints, and they often come up with quite new and interesting solutions. We found that, by the way, in the cluster missions convention and negotiations. There were some sticky moments in which we were trying to find solutions to some very technical things and different people had very different ideas and we came up with some amazing solutions um, that was very misunderstood in the press. So steps one, two and three are prohibition of first use, which would be in the case of nuclear weapons. I'm not sure now about that and how we're going to get to it. And I'll, I'll just talk about that in a minute. Then prohibition of use and leading to prohibition of um, possession. So we protect, protect, prevent massacre, and the second place we remove the source of the problem and outlaw the weapons. And all of that is not done in a day. All of that will take decades. And President Obama said, probably not in my lifetime. I don't know. I mean, likely, the way I see things is that when change happens, it happens quickly. And then war, the wall, the uptake of the iPhone. I mean, just. Change in society tends to be um, a step function. It goes from one level to another, what we call a phase transition in physics. Uh, some people call it tipping points. You know, and it seems to be a, a societal way. Um, epidemiology is, is similar. You, you, you get a, a quick, rapid um, transfer of information. It's almost what they call now a viral transfer. <laughs> and things can happen quickly. So I think if we decide to go down to zero, um, it could happen much more quickly than we think. Although, actually dismantling those weapons just takes time. But there are ways in which you can disable them very quickly. Uh, there are things you can do, like removing um, the fusing system, uh, stuffing the middle with stuff, which means they can't go off very, very quick, uh, disabling functions like that. So, while they are awaiting destruction, you can, in fact, make them uh, inoperable. Um, and then, the people-centred path demands highly effective outcomes. People deserve no life. And I think this is one of the messages we need to get across to those carrying out negotiations, is, you know, compromise is fine, get compromised to get treated with key for certain standards. Make sure that it's an effective outcome and not something that means next to nothing. And that might mean that fewer states will agree. And it might mean that at the beginning you don't get everyone in. Well, the NPT didn't get everyone in. The CTBT treaty still hasn't, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty still hasn't got everyone in, and yet nobody's testing. The key thing is nobody's testing. The key thing is that landmines are being removed. The key thing is that nobody's going to be making custom munitions. Let's, get, let's focus on what really matters and not get too caught up in politics and you said this and you said that and you haven't done this and 
you know, that treaty's not perfect. And they didn't include that special phrase, which is what people I work with are very upset about. But let's keep our eye on what really matters. And let's be pragmatic and not cling to obsolete methods and practice. That's just another lecture. <laughs> So results matter. Focus on human security, um, and the last point is that you know the nuclear weapons state should not be made to feel comfortable. This should not be an easy process for them. And when I have a government that I can't name, but is not very far away across a certain small stretch of water from this country, coming up to me and saying, "We didn't like what you did in that WMD commission, Patricia." My response was good, you weren't supposed to. <laughs> right? That's how we should be. But we can keep a sense of humor and we can keep respect, but we shouldn't be making nuclear mistakes feel comfortable if we're going to be getting with nuclear So we need ambition, um, we need this core group of states. I haven't gone a lot, lot into that process, but we've done a lot of analysis on that. Uh, we need a mix of strategies, multilateral, plurilateral, bilateral, Unilateral. All of this has come out from uh, different research. Key thing is engagement of the public. Really important. And I feel that one of the things that's happened in my work is that we've got far too away uh, from the public discourse and, and where uh, people are thinking. And we're not engaging the public, we always treat the public as if, you know, this is far too difficult for you to understand. It reminds me of nuclear physics, actually. Um, and for that, you need well-targeted campaigns and, and, and money to do that. And a multi-layered approach is required um, with different types of players and different types of negotiations with different types of metaphors. 